In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 24. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Season 16 has reached its penultimate episode. Where does the time go? With our big season finale coming next week, you may be wondering what our Halloween month of October will look like as it falls between season 16 and 17. In a nutshell, our upcoming schedule will look like this. Next weekend is our season 16 finale. Then, the first two weekends of October, the 3rd and the 10th, will feature hiatus episodes for our traditional listeners and bonus episodes like Suddenly Shocking and Old Time Radio for our Season Pass 16 members. Then, on the weekends of October 17th and 24th, we'll be featuring two episodes of our Sleepless Decompositions series, both featuring tales with that heady, smoky aroma of autumn and Halloween's pumpkin spice to them. Then we'll conclude on the Halloween weekend itself with our free full-length Halloween episode and bonus season pass Halloween show. And that bonus Halloween episode will be available to both season pass 16 and season pass 17 members. Season pass 17, you ask? Why, yes, that will be starting pre-orders on October 13th. And speaking of Season 17, that will premiere on November 7th. So you can brace yourself for a full slate of episodes to make October a month worth of Halloween horrors. Oh, and there's one other thing to brace yourself for, especially if you live near the mighty metropolis of Gotham. No, no, not Batman's Gotham but the large, Apple-ish city that never sleeps, New York City. Because on Sunday, October 17th, at the Bell House in Brooklyn, the No Sleep Podcast will be returning once again to the live stage. That's right, a one-night-only show we're calling Sleepless Spectacular, a horrifying Halloween variety show. Featuring three acts, we'll be joined by the Sanderson Sister Wives, a comedy singing act inspired by the witches from the movie Hocus Pocus, beautifully bewitching. And we'll be featuring a clown act. Yes, that's right, a clown act called Imminent Departure. The clocks tick, the hearts beat, the minds churn. If you arrive late, you'll be gone. Don't be scared. You heard them. Those were clowns who wrote that. You'd best be fully braced for them. And, of course, for us. I'll be joined on stage by Mike Delgadio, 
Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, and the evening's producer and host, Sarah Olivia. And of course, our maestro, Brandon Boone, will be with us providing live music for the two original Halloween-themed scripts we'll be performing. It will be an absurd and delightfully dark evening of Halloween horror at the Bell House. Tickets are only $25 and will be available from the Bell House website. If they're not on sale by the time you hear this, make sure you follow our social media accounts to find out when they go live. So make plans now to spend a fully vaxxed evening with us as No Sleep Live celebrates its return to the stage. I hope all of our October plans will make this a Halloween month to remember. And now, speaking of things to remember, as I continue to deal with the fallout from last week, I'm forced to remember what happened after I was interrupted while speaking with someone claiming to be our benefactor, Boston Coleridge. There is no Joanna. There is only my cry for help, silenced by the whisperer in the night. I think he means me. My eyes were fixed to the screen. I could feel Joanna. No, no, not Joanna. Something. Whatever had been masquerading as a person named Joanna. I could feel it behind me. Hot breath on my neck that somehow I could just tell was inhuman in some way. Corrupted, maybe. I didn't dare turn around. What I did, however, was hit record on my PC and managed to capture, well, everything. Joanna, I'm led to believe that someone hasn't been entirely honest with me, and it's either our original benefactor or you. Now, I'm inclined to trust you, because you've been the one beside me during a lot of this, but I can't- You can drop the pretense. I can tell that you know. I can feel it. You know what it's like. Fine. So, what, you've been meddling with things this whole time? Trying to disrupt the stories Boston Coleridge, our benefactor, wanted me to tell? Correct. And you fell for it marvelously. You have no idea. Rituals woven into stories, hidden spells, messages implanted within words, activation phrases for various events that will contribute to humanity's doom. You, an unwitting broadcaster, as the spells required, and in a delicious moment of vindictiveness, all hidden within the much-needed warnings that you've been sending out. And before you think about pulling any stories to try and do damage control, it's far too late for that. The spells are complex, dark, pervasive, modern. These days, you can't take back what you put out there. So why have you been with me this whole time? Why not just meddle from afar? Oh, that was the plan. Only you were meant to survive the explosion at my bookstore. But then, someone, Boston Coleridge or one of his lackeys, pulled us both to safety. And I realize it's sticking around you. It's let me spread my word even further. I'm almost disappointed I got found out. But I don't understand what for. What have you achieved? Nothing's changed. You have no idea. Like I said, these rituals were complex. 
They take time. You have no idea what you've unleashed on the world. Okay, but I, I got warnings out too, right? The stories Coleridge wanted me to tell? Sure. Of course you and that old fool would have it in common to look on the bright side. You've helped prepare humanity for some threats, yes. And made them more vulnerable to others. And even initiated others still. But what? What have we caused together as you've manipulated me? Oh, you'll find out. Don't worry. This isn't the end. Remember this. Where there are twin suns, there can be a lunar answer. The sky is falling, Cummings. It's up to you how slowly it collapses. And with that, I could sense she had gone. I had a feeling it wouldn't be the last I saw of Joanna. I have one more week in which to get you all caught up to speed with how things finally played out. I thought things would be over, and this is true, but it seems like they're only just beginning, too. We're in for some strange, turbulent times ahead, folks. In the meantime, there are still remaining stories to share. This time verified and approved by our benefactor as being safe from Joanna's meddling. So picture, if you will, a man steeped in horror. The horror found in entertainment. He writes a bit on his popular blog, a pastime which garners him many fans. I can't say for sure if Carson Winter is the blogger in question, but I can assure you that one of his fans has a story to share with him, one which may not be safely ensconced in the realm of fiction. Peter Lewis and Dan Zapula bring this one to life, deep within the Museum of Lost Things. To whom it may concern, last night I sat on my couch watching found footage horror films until midnight. When I woke up, the Blair Witch Project was running itself in yet another repetition. The characters screamed at each other, they got lost, cried, they did this ad infinitum, and in each cycle they asked the genre's most sacred question, why are you filming? I couldn't shake the feeling that my subconscious was taking the wheel. I'd been through something horrific. I was watching scary movies, I was processing, I was studying these characters whose primary motivations were to document, to decide if that pull I felt inside myself was its kin. What happened with Hank was worse than anything. Making it a story cheapens it. But I'm a cheap guy. I'm gross, sad, confused, and I'm watching scary movies. I don't know what happens after the camera falls to the ground, blasts, static, and goes black. But I do know that if I don't document any of this, it might as well have not happened at all. We all have our comfort food, and as a writer, as a person in trouble, I reserve the right to tell my story however I want. So, here I am. I'm staring into the camera. (laughs) I'm putting pen to paper. I'm thinking about found footage. 
The camera would rewind. We'd see everything through jittering static bars and effective anachronism. People walk backwards, glasses are lifted to mouths and filled with crystalline water with every gulp. Three months pass this way and when you first see me, I'm staring into the eye of a camera. It's black and white, grainy. I'm at a bank standing behind the counter. Customers walk backwards and disappear out the door. The rewind stops and we're returned to normal speed. A man walks in. He comes to me. There is no sound in the security footage, but you can see us talking. The timestamp reads 4.56 p.m. Hank was the first person to ever recognize me. Not that I ever expected to be recognized. In the world of horror blogging, I was a medium-sized potato, which is to say, in the world of actual writing, I was no one at all. I wrote informal essays on mainstream horror, piecing together the zeitgeist through slashers, reboots, remakes, and Bloomhouse. But in spite of my relative insignificance, Hank paused when he saw me, gasping even, like I was some sort of celebrity. He asked if I wanted to grab a beer sometime. I was standing behind the counter at a bank, watching the clock, and said, Why not now? An hour later, we had drinks at a nearby tap house, and in another half hour, our conversation had sputtered to a halt. We'd talked movies, but really, that can only take you so far. We agreed that The Thing was a classic, just as we agreed on a dozen other films. Our enthusiasm for agreement was dwindling. Hank was a classicist who enjoyed hammer horror and universal flicks, but I admittedly had little knowledge on them besides what I saw on TV as a kid, so once again our conversation lost its steam. To fill the silence, I mentioned offhand that I might have to do more UFO features, as the release schedule for upcoming horror films was somewhat anemic. This was a part of the blog that I didn't particularly like doing, the paranormal write-ups, but in spite of that, they tended to be the pieces that got the closest to going viral. The way Hank's face lit up, I realized I'd hit upon a topic of interest. So, do you believe in any of it? Believe in what? Unexplained phenomena. No. We were circling the drain, a last grab on a loose rock before we both fell. His eyes widened. None of it? UFOs? Bigfoot? Government conspiracies? No. Well, maybe the last one. He was smiling, but he didn't find any of it funny. There's shit out there, man. I've seen it. You've written about it. I tried not to make my boredom seem obvious. Everyone wants their government to be spying on them. It's a dystopian disenfranchisement fantasy. Reality is, by its very nature, unexciting. In response to this, we try and make it fit the fictional narratives we admire. Okay, sure. But what about the stuff we don't admire? I almost had a retort, but as soon as I opened my mouth, he started in again. There's stuff out there that you don't want to be true, but it is. Girls get trafficked into sexual slavery, kids get left in hot cars and die, men and women toss chunks of poisoned meat over fences to kill family pets. People kill people. These are things that we don't want to believe happen, but they do. I drank my beer, pretending his fervor hadn't unsettled me. 
bad things happen. Yes, but if the things that are bad really happen, they aren't phenomena, right? Sure. And if they don't happen, what are they? Myths? Legends? I shrugged. I guess. But the moment we discover they did happen, it's no longer a myth. Real things are real, and unreal things are myths. Yes, got it. He stopped for a moment, looking down into his glass. Can I show you something? I'm not buying anything. I felt stupid as the words came out. Hank was no salesman. He was too soft, too earnest. He slapped a twenty on the table and put his hands up like a magician reassuring a mark. I think I found something, a a phenomena. Maybe you'd like to see it. Maybe you can write about it. I could have said no. I probably should have. I don't believe in much beyond what I can see, but the way he said it made him seem... so sad. Hank looked at me with those big, innocent eyes, and I I didn't want to disappoint him. He was a fan, after all, so I told him I'd go. It was the beer talking, at least a little, but to tell the truth, it was also because I felt special. Hank wanted to show me something. He thought I, above anyone else, would appreciate it. My narcissism was in full bloom. We left the bar and Hank led the way. I trailed behind him, hands shielding my glasses from the rain. When he turned down an alley, I almost doubled back. (laughs) No, man, fuck this. I'm not going down an alley with you. But as I was given pause, he turned and waved me forward. Just a little further. His face was that of dumb oblivion. Hating myself, I trusted him. The alley sliced through a block of four-story brownstones. Dumpsters lined the slick, rough asphalt. On the other side of the alley, I could see an orange street lamp strobing against the charcoal blue sky. Come on, it's here. He stopped in the center of the alley where the orange lights from the streets couldn't reach us. When I caught up to him, I saw that he was staring down. Along the side of the alley, the brick gave way to a steep stairwell going down. Hank shook his phone, producing a flashlight. The steps were gray concrete, flanked by a metal railing covered in chipped paint. He looked at me expectantly. This is it. It's a basement? Storage? You're half right. Which half? He took a step forward and put his hand on the railing. I followed behind him, stopping at the top step, watching my new acquaintance disappear into the darkness. Then, over the sound of rain, I heard a hinge creak. The steps were suddenly illuminated, wet and slippery and bathed in white fluorescent light. Come on, wait until you see this. And because I came this far, I followed him to the cracked door. Down a dark alley, down dark steps, into a bright room. I stood bewildered. This wasn't just a room, it was a lobby. Velvet ropes guided us to an unattended service desk, pristine in its absence. Hank turned back to me. Weird, right? What is this place? He didn't answer, instead forging ahead and navigating the velvet ropes. I followed him, feeling a creeping dread as I did. It was too perfect, too clean. It all looked 
human, and yet there were no people, there were no tills, there was nothing to suggest we were supposed to be here. Are, are we trespassing, or...? I don't think so. At the end of the velvet ropes, there was a door. He motioned to a small spinning wire rack filled with pamphlets. Take one. He swallowed and laughed a little. <laughs> a souvenir, I guess? I did as he said and looked at the oddity in my hands with disbelief. Its header was written in the digital cursive of an amateur graphic designer. Welcome to the Museum of Lost Things. If you enjoyed your visit, please think about donating. A museum? My question was rhetorical, of course. It, it was right on the pamphlet. Hank didn't slow, passing exhibits of artifacts and dioramas as I traipsed behind him. Look at this one. Notice anything? I found him staring at a glass case. In it was a miniature boat. I didn't have much in the way of nautical knowledge, but the placard beside it said that it was a steamboat, Lady Calabasas, 1892. I mouthed the name, shrugging. I, I don't get it. He pointed at the printed index card beside it. Okay, I'll play along. I hunched over and read the card aloud, feeling as if I were a weary father checking the closet for a boogeyman. <clears throat> From 1890 to 1892, Lady Calabasas was a member of the Mosquito Fleet, small steamboats used as transportation among Oregonians along the coast. These boats were smaller than trade ships, but no less stunning to see in person. Lady Calabasas was... <clears throat> what is this? Keep reading. I took a deep breath and looked at the card, skimming along the itinerant facts of its historical captain, James Fall. Beside the model ship were several grainy black and white photos, families staring blankly into the camera as Captain Fall waved farewell to land. Tragedy took the Lady Calabasas when a storm swept the ship out to sea. While the ship remained intact, its travelers did not. Hank winced. He was waiting for me to say something, but I wasn't sure what I was supposed to say. Finally, he spoke. None of it happened. What? He rushed over to another display. This one was a photograph of a woman labeled 1930. She had a child on her lap. She wore an apron. Behind her was a rusted cylinder, maybe a boiler that melted into stark shadows. Beside the photograph was a wooden handle ending in a sharp rock, connected with tightly wound twine. The label read, Tomahawk. Hank read quickly, as if he'd already read it a thousand times over. Mary Wishaw, pictured here with her son Calamity Cal Wishaw, worked as a seamstress throughout the early 20th century. She was known by friends and family as Mary Mary for her jovial spirit and penchant for tawdriness. Cal Wishaw was her only living child and, for a long while, the only known, until a raised storefront in Mary's neighborhood led to the discovery of a mass grave. It seems to many that Mary Mary was not that Mary after all, and, as her dalliances spun out of control, so did she. Authorities counted seven infant corpses, all disposed of in the rotting floor of an abandoned grocer. Mary Mary was sentenced to death by hanging. 
As Hank stared at me, looking at me for some sort of answer, I dwelled on the image of purple-faced infants with crushed skulls. I thought of the rats that chewed on their silken flesh, a shrill scream, their first and final contribution to reality before Mary Mary slammed their fragile bodies into the foundation amongst a nest of cracked skeletons. All I could say was the obvious. That's messed up. Why are you showing me this shit? He motioned to my pocket. I didn't do this. Look it up. Do it. None of it happened, he had said. I took him at his word. I looked up Mary, Mary Wyshaw, Calamity Wyshaw. I looked up local child deaths. I searched for the last voyage of the Lady Calabasas. Nothing. I felt as if I were being forced to reconcile two great opposing forces, the immaculateness of the museum with the eels coiling in my stomach. I felt ready to run, and I would have if Hank hadn't looked so sorrowful, so confused, so fucking normal. I just thought you might know about it. I turned for the door. I, I don't know shit about this. On one of the walls was a bookcase filled with documents, some in elegant cursive, some typed. All of them were under the raised bronze lettering that titled them Manifestos. Hank walked after me. I couldn't keep this shit secret. It's too weird. I found the door to the lobby. Beside it, a sign. Thank you for visiting. Above was a map covered in red, pox-like dots. See if we're in your city. I passed it without a second look. When I got outside, I breathed deep, thankful for cool air. The rain had stopped and the city smelled clean. I left the alley and hit the sidewalk, slammed my back to a brick wall and tried to process what I'd just seen. A full museum, exhibits, dioramas and history all filled with fiction. Hank caught up with me wearing that same hangdog face. Hey, hey, I, I didn't mean to trap you like that. I'm sorry. How did you find it? I winced as I waited for him to say, it found me. Just the right place at the right time, I guess. I exhaled. He reached into his jacket and pulled out a smoke. I was playing location scout and needed an alley. I wandered down the wrong one. My ears perked up. Movies? Commercials, mostly. Right, right. What do you think it is? I shrugged. I was starting to see things more clearly. Uh, prank, maybe? None of it's real, right? Total fiction. Maybe it's some sort of performance art? I've thought of that, but I've never seen anyone else go in. We were silent for a moment. Above, rain started to fall again in a fine mist. I had one last question. Why me? For the first time, Hank's loose sullenness hardened. He threw his cigarette to the ground, extinguishing it with the sole of his shoe. I like your blog, and I wanted to meet you. And that was that. We parted ways and exchanged numbers. The strangeness of being sought out by a stranger was dwarfed under the shadow of the Museum of Lost Things. Compared to the Lady Calabasas and the Merry Mary, Hank was a trifle. 
I saw him again a couple times, and we'd talk about the museum, but we kept the conversation light and easy. He was nervous, over-eager, and easily wounded, but he liked to talk, and he sure as hell liked me. If I posted a review, or when I was feeling especially self-important, a retrospective, Hank would call me to discuss it at length. He'd pick at my word choice and challenge my conclusions, offer obscure counterpoints, but it'd always end with him swelling with joy in some way. I came to realize that we were both outsiders looking into the world of film, hoping desperately for someone to call on us when we raised our hand. I had my writing, which I desperately hoped Fangoria would notice, and Hank was waiting to get called on to some sort of prestige horror flick. He was a writer, too, I found out, with a stack of original screenplays, read by no one but himself. We joined hands and did what we did best, vomit our thoughts onto a page and then throw them out into the void. We were like minds. We could talk about movies, books, and even the real-life phenomena I continued to dismiss. Hank always had a friend of a friend who was gutted in the woods or abducted by aliens. It was the same sort of dialogue you could imagine having in a tent with a bunch of nine-year-olds. Everything was real. Everything was magical. Before long, we had decided that the Museum of Lost Things was some sort of viral marketing pop-up that just didn't take off. There must be a hundred of those things. Sure, why not? Time had taken the sting out of the scorpion. What once felt like a waking nightmare was now merely odd. Funny, even. Hank went off as a production assistant for a shoot in Northern California, and our texts and phone calls grew less frequent. I was starting a new job. Weeks passed and life went on. The last time he called me, we hadn't spoken in a month. The call was short, caked in static, but the first words out of his mouth were, I went back. The rest was a garbled mess of run-on sentences. He kept saying he was sorry, and I kept saying sorry for what? When the call ended, I felt an overwhelming sense of despair. I called the police to let them know that I had gotten a disturbing call and that I thought my friend might be in trouble. But I had no last name, no location, just a phone number, and when I tried calling him back, it was disconnected. It was winter, and I couldn't afford to turn on the heat. I shivered myself asleep, dreading the worst. Here, the CCTV camera footage shows the bank. Uh, customers do business. Our humble narrator processes transactions. Time flies in fast-forward, then stops. Uh, I, or, or the person that looks like me, walks out to refill papers at a self-service kiosk. The camera jumps, and suddenly I'm two feet to the right of where I was, but nothing else happens. I felt the loss the most when I pressed publish on an editorial about the lack of iconic monsters in modern horror. I was thinking about the over-influence of H.R. Geiger, but I was also thinking about Hank. My life kept moving forward, but Hank was an unforgettable bookmark. I'd gotten a new job, I got more serious about my writing, I lost my girlfriend, but there was always Hank at the back of my mind. He loved the old, old school, them, Rodin, Dracula. 
He once told me the greatest monster of all time was Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf. I wrote about how the age of iconic monster designs was far behind us, that in the quest to make everything look alien, that now nothing was memorable. This was, in a way, a calling card. I knew if there was anything to make him raise his head out of the dust, it'd be this. I even put a big old one-sheet of his favorite wolfman as the header. But, of course, nothing. Angry and hurt, I was putting off the inevitable. I remember his first last sentence. I went back. He said it in the same sad, inevitable way he said everything. The radio silence regarding my monster story was... <laughs> deafening. I felt smaller than ever, the very definition of an outsider looking in, just pathetic. So I went downtown first just to grab a beer and drown my sorrows, but then I began to retrace my steps. There was nothing else to do, really. My ambition had been sapped, not just for Hank, but for myself, too. I, I was just going to get drunk. I arrived at the same tap house, not through any urge to recreate that first meeting with Hank. It was just the only place I knew. I went there and had two beers and planned on talking to the bartender about why everything I ever tried to like tasted like shit, but the place was busy. He barely had time to charge my card. My legs were feeling restless. I checked my phone to see if I got any comments, shares, anything at all in response to my story. Nothing? So I stood up. I was just walking. I didn't know where I was going. I pretended well enough. When I stood at the edge of the immaculate alley, when I looked down its dark corridor, I pretended it was just a happy coincidence. Oh, wow! Who'd have thought I'd end up here, hmm? And then I was at the stairs. Well, maybe just a quick look-see. And in a moment, I was running down them, disappearing into the black, groping in the dark for the door, pushing helplessly until it gave way and light stunned my eyes. I remembered how easily Hank found it. I wondered how many times he'd been there. I cowered behind my hand as the light struck me. These were the last moments of blissful ignorance, and as my eyes adjusted, I knew it was all coming to an end. I could turn around and never come back. I could tell myself that the museum no longer existed. It was gone. A viral marketing pop-up, just like I said. But it was still there. And it was gorgeous. Nothing had changed. The museum of lost things was as constant and static as death itself. I followed the velvet ropes while questions rattled. Who changes the light bulbs? Who writes the placards? Where do the pamphlets come from? I tried to imagine construction workers hauling materials up and down the stairs. Did they have a radio? Did they listen to music while they worked? Where did they take their breaks? As I passed through the doors past the pamphlets, I realized that I couldn't imagine the museum being built. No, only existing and for some reason the thought made me sick to my stomach. Then I remembered why I was here. Hank? My voice sounded dampened and hollow, totally alone. With it came the realization that 
that everything people make is draped in some sort of figurativeness. We use simile and metaphor, we create proverbs and analogies. Sarcasm and its pointed irony becomes precision. Hearing my own voice in the caverns of the Museum of Lost Things was repulsively literal. It was a reminder that language is a product of people, and that here I could not see people in any of its warm, humming ambiance, its literature, or its curative design. It was a place of absence, documenting absence. I staggered on shaky legs looking for some sign of the friend I almost knew, but there were only exhibits. Cairns of information arranged as sacrifice to some unseen eye. They all worshipped at the altar of the massacre, as if these were the self-congratulatory first steps to mass extinction. To my right was a loving depiction of a commuter bus unpeeling itself as its driver guided its nose into a too small train tunnel. It rode on the tracks until it reached its natural end, and as the doors were sealed shut by the crumpling of its metal, the honking scream of a locomotive sounded to its trapped passengers that their time had come. All varieties of weapons were celebrated, knives and pipe bombs, AK-47s and revolvers. A man who killed his family by weighing them down to the bottom of the pool was memorialized with a full diorama, as well as statistics on blood oxygen levels for each victim's size and relative terror. The man, a friendly-looking suburban father with a mustache and a lawnmower, waved in a photograph. Then there were the school shooters. Placards fetishized where they found their weapons, what gun laws allowed them to carry and which they had to circumvent. Big quotes in leaning italics danced across the wall. He was always kind of a loner. We tried therapy after his father and I split. In the glass case there were drawings of torture contraptions, poems written in heavy, scratching ink, and video installations of the would-be killer speaking directly to the viewer detailing their future actions. Beneath the video there was a colorful diagram showing where chance and circumstance forced the perpetrator to deviate from their plans. Then there were bombers whose displays were invariably accompanied by lengths of twisty, blackened metal. And then the poisoners who lived their last moments doling out punch to friends, family, and co-workers. The last questions they heard were the people around them questioning the brand of juice. It's a little bitter. Uh, not bad. Just a little bite. Is it cranberry-based? And none of them existed. Killers and victims joined fully in some cosmic cycle. I felt myself growing weak. Tired, overstimulated, I wanted desperately to escape. But I knew there was more. That something in this place was calling to me, just as it had called to Hank. On the outer edges, closest to the furthest wall, I found it. It was a humble display with just a fragment of the murderous spree that inspired it, three shell casings and a bank statement. 
the last processed before the intruder entered, opening fire like a madman. Stills from the camera were too blurry to make out, but the informational placard said the perpetrator's name was Henry Laramie. I looked closer at the picture and recognized the same carpet, the same faux Greek pillars that rose to a stunted ceiling beside the front door. I cocked my head, not quite believing what I read, what I saw before my eyes. This, this was my bank, my old job, the canvas for a massacre. I looked at the timestamp on the photograph and I realized that it was either my last day or the day after. I couldn't be sure. I, I might have arranged an early day, but I couldn't remember. It wasn't so long ago, only a month. My memories seeped into each other. Of course, it was around that same time I got that last call from Hank. I went back, he had said. I thought with a shudder that Hank is short for Henry sometimes. In dignified times New Roman, the dead were engraved in bronze. I looked for someone I knew but was left scrambling for connections. Elliot Grandmont? Was that L? Michael Carr? Maybe that was Matt? Maybe I misremembered his name? They were both common. I looked at the names and none of them were real to me. But that was my bank, and I should have known every single one of them. Among the names was that of Henry Laramie, who ended his life moments after the last teller collapsed. To read Laramie's manifesto, please see the manifesto library, I read aloud. I turned my head and saw the great exhibit at the south side of the underground museum. Lamps shined on the wall, illuminating it with a kiss of warmth, like a library newspaper stand. The shelves were shallow and the covers looked you in the eye. Each was laminated with a hole punch at the left-hand corner that housed a protective wire that secured each page to the wall behind it. They were organized by ACT. Mass murder, political H, bombings, apolitical W, infanticide, cult D. When I reached Henry Laramie, mass murder, apolitical L, I closed my eyes and thought about keeping them shut. I could still turn around, leave forever. I, I could be content in not knowing. <sighs> That wasn't me. No, I wanted to know. I pulled the single-typed page, and the wire made a zipper sound as it gave. I held it with two hands in front of me. It read. Funny how life happens, right? To a certain degree, we all have expectations. Like, when we're young, we have a vision of our lives. When I was a kid, I used to walk really fast. Because of metaphors. <laughs> I thought that when I passed kids in the hall that I was setting a goalpost, I was faster, I was better. And now that I had gotten to class earlier, the rest of my life would fall like dominoes in some grand butterfly effect. The disappointing thing is that, of course, that's not the way it happens. The slowest walkers can go on to do great things, and the fastest walkers get fucked over sometimes. Maybe not bad. It wasn't bad for me. I shouldn't let people think it was. It was okay most of the time. But when you want 
great. Anything less just hurts like hell. It becomes uncontrollable. And suddenly mediocrity is all you see in yourself, in others. I know all of these things to be true. I am the one that is wrong, and I am the one that will hurt people. If you can't tell, this is more of a letter than a manifesto. I won't say who it's for, but I hope that it finds its audience. I would say, but names are a dangerous commodity around here. How weak are we? How sad and pathetic living through power fantasies disguised as disempowerment fantasies. It's the same urge of self-destruction they refer to as the call of the void. L'appel du vide, as the French say. Think of when you're driving and you can't help but want to twist the wheel and slam into oncoming traffic. It's the same thing. Eternal predator, eternal prey. Forgotten somewhere, remembered elsewhere. It's a choice. It's a balance. It's concrete, even if it's erased, like a pencil sketch that gets rubbed raw and laid over with a new drawing. Still there. Still there. (laughs) Best regards, Henry. As I let go of the paper, the elastic pulley word, and brought it back into the bosom of the Museum of Lost Things, I backed away, adrenaline coursing through my body, rickety legs propelling me through the doors. On the way out, I saw the donation box. Someone had left a fiver. When I reached the velvet ropes, I ran up the black stairs into the alley, onto the street, straight to my car. I turned up the radio and I tried to sing songs I'd never heard before. And I thought about all the songs I've heard but since forgotten, and all the songs that I sang that were never there. I drove fast and kept thinking about Henry Laramie, maybe Hank, maybe not. And then when I got home, I sat. I settled. I thought about everything that happened to me, and I realized nothing had. I tried to remember my old co-workers. My memories felt dreamy or hazy, large swaths of characterization performed in thick brush strokes. My manager was a curt, middle-aged woman. Elle was very pretty and nice. Brian asked me if I wanted to play poker once. I dwelled on these facts, tried to make them real, but every so often a new image would infiltrate an implant or a recollection I couldn't tell. Then, a violent scene. Screaming, crying, a gunman passing me without a second look, sparing me. Shots fired, bloodshed and carnage. The smell of iron. A woman pleading, my heart galloping. Just a sketch, a cast of characters erased, new ones penciled over their faded outlines, maybe, or maybe not. I'm writing this because I don't want to be forgotten. Like Hank, I am a sad man with bones to pick, with dreams unrealized and an unfortunate deck of genetic cards and... All I want is a record. Something 
to say I was here. I won't sign my name because names are dangerous. But if I release this in the wild, it'll survive. Even if everything catches up to me. Even if I do something stupid. So I'm staring into the camera. And my, my face fills the frame. Quietly, if you listen, you can you can hear cars in the background. You realize I'm outside, around me, around you. A thousand tragedies perpetuate themselves in silent infinity. And with this realization, after a moment of lingering, we cut to chaotically shaking footage. We can't tell what's happening, but it ends as soon as we realize that people are running. Sincerely. Back in the 19th century, medical technology was rather limited. When a doctor faced a puzzling and difficult case, the only way to confer with a colleague was via letter. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Horatio Marissa, a doctor seeks help with a case that is undeniably disturbing. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Aaron Lillis, and Atticus Jackson. So let's learn about what happened in this case. Something we're able to do thanks to a recovered letter. Transcription of the last known letter correspondence between Dr. William T. Clay and Dr. Alfred McMillan Sent from Bramwell, West Virginia, to New York City, New York. Letter dated November 17th, 1893. Dear Alfred, I hope dearly that this letter finds you quickly. I fear my case in Mercer County has taken a turn for the worse, and I require immediate assistance from you. Stating it in such a manner seems like a massive underestimation, but there it is. I'll be blunt. In my ten years of practice, I've never before witnessed something of this manner. To prepare you, I'll detail the events of the past few days below. I fear you'll think ill of me after I am done, or that I've gone mad. But I assure you that I am in as sound a mind as ever. I arrived at the Latimer residence on November the 15th. It's some five miles from Bramwell, a small mining community, and I walked the distance, as I couldn't find a soul heading in the same direction. I was asked to come, as you may recall, by an old friend of mine, Mr. Ernest Latimer. We met when I still took regular calls to the country, and we've been fast friends since. I even attended his wedding. His wife, Libby, was the patient in question. 
She was born and raised on a tiny settlement deep in the Appalachian woods. Mm, name escapes me. And though she is kind enough, there's always been a odd air to her. She visits home regularly. It was on one of those trips, and this part is so odd that I asked twice for clarification from Ernest that she was attacked by a deer. Now, I'm aware that you were raised in the city, Alfred, and therefore I offer that deer attacks are nearly unheard of. They're flighty creatures who will startle at the slightest movement. Nevertheless, a vicious bite wound does, or did, reside on Libby's forearm. The teeth marks would indicate that the attacker was, in fact, a deer, though the wound was very ragged. After arriving back home on November the 8th, Libby began to complain of feeling feverish, and Ernest noticed she was visibly flushed. Her fever refused to break after three nights, and after discovering the wound to be inflamed, I was called. I remember that upon stepping into the house, I was struck with an odd smell. It was sweet, unpleasantly so, but so low-lying that it could have been an odd fruit or a meal left in the cupboard too long. As we walked through the house, the smell grew stronger until it was actively distracting once we reached the bedroom. I'm well acquainted with the smell of sickness, Alfred, and though the two were close enough that one could be compared to the other, they were distinctly different. Ernest slowly opened the door, and I stepped inside. Libby was awake and lucid when I first examined her, if a bit fatigued. I sat by her and had her explain the encounter once again. Though nothing in our conversation seemed amiss at the time, looking back, she reacted quite oddly to some of my questions. When I asked if a deer had bit her, she took a long moment to answer. Her face contorted slightly as she nodded as though she wasn't quite sure. She also complained of a bad headache, which I attributed to the fever. I feel like a fool now for doing so, but as I retrace my steps through the encounter, I find that my first assertion was logical. There was simply no way of knowing. I'll go on, Alfred. You must excuse these guilty ramblings of mine. I am in a bad way after tonight's transpirings. The deer bite worried me. The veins that lead away from it had taken up a swollen red complexion that was characteristic of infection. I washed the wound and applied a topical rub before rebandaging it and bid Libby rest. Ernest allowed me to sleep in their spare bedroom. It lay beside their bedroom, and the odd smell seemed to permeate through the wall. I found myself so irritated that, when alone, I took to hooking my shirt up over my nose to block out the scent. My sleep was fitful, and when I woke the next morning, I was sore and tired. Libby's condition had only worsened in the night. I ate before examining her once more. The smell in the room was now so strong that I coughed upon entering the door. Her face only looked more flushed, but there was a certain gauntness to it that I hadn't seen before. She complained once again of a headache and told me that she was dreadfully hungry. None of the inflammation in the wound had gone away. After she had eaten, I let two pints of blood from her before bidding her sleep again. She did so with little hesitation. Ernest and I spent much of the day in the house. 
There were a whole host of chores to be done now that Libby was sick, so we spent most of our time fetching wood for the fireplace and tidying up the rooms we had disrupted and cooking. Libby slept fitfully, and more than once she awoke in a desperate state of thirst. I would bring her a glass of water, which she would quickly drain. The fourth time this happened, she brought the glass to her lips before suddenly convulsing and vomiting across the bedsheets. I tried to see this as a good sign, as the body expelling bad matter. But as Ernest and I attempted to change the bedsheets, this line of thinking was quickly abandoned. Among the bile and food lay several clumps of hair. It was very short hair, like the trimmings of a beard, and dark brown. I was dumbfounded and determined to set my mind to other matters as I washed the blankets. Even so, I couldn't help but notice how Libby's vomit seemed to radiate the same sickly sweet smell that filled the house. Even now, the scent lingers on my hands, caked into my nail beds, hiding in the crevices of my palms. I long to bathe. Libby fell back asleep after Ernest replaced her sheets. By this time, it was nearing dark, and my old friend practically fell into his chair by the fireplace, exhaustion playing across his face. We spoke in hushed tones to pass the time. Though we attempted not to touch the matter at hand, it was clear that he was deeply concerned with his wife's health. His eye would drift to the door of their bedroom any time there was a lull in the conversation. And though I tried to distract him with talk, there was a distant look in his eye that never left through our whole conversation. An hour or so must have passed before the fire reduced in size such that we could barely see. Ernest made to rise, but I assured him I could fetch the firewood and I left the house for the shed where the logs are stacked. As the last of the day's light faded from the sky, I couldn't help but stare out at the mountains. During the day, the Appalachian Mountains are strikingly beautiful, and in the night, this effect is not lost, but it is distinctly not the same. In darkness, the mountains seem to grow larger, and their stillness is almost eerie. For a moment, they struck me not as mountains, but as a giant creature unmoving but alive, observing me from above. And in that moment, I was very afraid. When I entered the house once more, Ernest was gone from his seat. It shouldn't have struck me as odd, but a queer sense of dread had followed me in from outside, and I abruptly set the firewood down and observed the room. Quickly, I came to the realization that the door to the bedroom was open. I lit a candle and came inside. Libby was asleep, and Ernest stood over her. I whispered his name, but there was no response from him. It was in that moment that I realized that he was shaking violently, like he'd caught a continual chill. My attention snapped back to Libby, but she was breathing. The warm light of the candle glistened when it met her skin. She was so slick with sweat that she looked as if she'd been doused in water. This detail had captured me so that I didn't notice it until Ernest gave a shuddering gasp and finally spoke. William, look at the top of her head. I did so and froze. At first, I thought it was some sort of worm, 
somehow I thought a very large worm had made its way into the room and latched itself onto Libby's scalp. But that wasn't right. The thing was too long, too thick, too like a muscle to be anything but animal. As I stared, my mind reeling, I began to notice the small bits of gore that hung from her hair and dripped onto the pillow. Whatever it was, wasn't latched onto her, I realized. Something inside her head had punctured its way through the roof of her skull. It was impossible, but there it was. Slowly, I stared down at Libby. She was serene in her sleep, still breathing slowly. Somehow this made my horror grow as I turned back to the wound and the alien object suddenly came into sharp focus. It wasn't a worm. It was the tail of a rat. As if to confirm my theory, the thing twitched suddenly. Ernest stumbled backward and fell, but I remained rooted to the spot, transfixed by the impossible sight. Upon the sound of her husband's fall, Libby's eyes opened. Both Ernest and I froze as she sleepily surveyed the room. William. Hello, Libby. How do you feel? She smiled, and there was a short brown hair stuck between two of her teeth. I feel much better. Her words slurred slightly, as if she'd had too much to drink. I realized with a start that I was backing slowly away from her. Is... is something wrong? Sweat was pouring down her forehead in sheets, and she blinked lazily as it spilled into her eyes. Then, suddenly, the strip of skin from her collarbone to her back bulged. My first thought as I turned and ran from the room was that she'd had a massive muscle spasm. I knew better, though. Muscle spasms don't move like that at all. It was far too large and in a place where there was little tissue. The sight repeated in my mind as I fell against Ernest's chair by the fire. The husband was soon after me, and we cowered away from the door to the bedroom, which we dared not go back to close. There was the sound of fabric shifting and a soft thump as Libby's feet hit the floor. Libby, you're very sick. Go back to bed. She ignored me, instead emerging slowly from the doorway. Her walk was odd, accented by jerks and spasms of muscle. Ernest stood paralyzed beside me. We both watched in rapt horror as she stumbled towards us. Her nightgown lay close to her skin and I could see the fabric ripple oddly around her, as though there was something small and quick running about under it. If there was, she showed no signs of discomfort. Ernest, I feel a lot better now. Ernest slowly moved to pass me, but I held my arm out, stopping him. Libby frowned. Ernest. But her voice was wrong when she said it. Too strained. Too low. Ernest. Then she gave a soft groan as her mouth fell open limply. 
I suspect that her jaw muscles had been chewed through at that point, for her mouth hung far too wide open. She seemed to want to try and speak, but all that came out was a wet, choking sound. She didn't seem to notice this. She didn't even seem to notice when the thing in her throat finished crawling out. It perched in her unhinged jaw, staring forward expectantly. It was a fat, brown rat. Its coat had been dyed dark with something I couldn't make out, but its small, pale hands were slick with blood. The thing leapt from her jaw onto the front of her nightgown before skittering to the ground. It ran towards us and Ernest screamed, kicking it away. It landed in a heap by the fireplace. Libby moaned loudly and suddenly two more rats had replaced the first and then another and another. Her arms and legs seized with activity, writhing in a manner more akin to a snake than a human limb. The rats began to pour steadily from her mouth, her flesh stretching and tearing until her cheeks were reduced to a mess of torn flesh. As they poured out, Libby seemed to shrink slightly as the rats fled her, a motion I can only liken to a sandcastle crumbling when water is poured atop it. In this moment, something in earnest seemed to snap and with a tortured cry, he ran forward and pushed what remained of his wife down the cellar stairs. As she fell, her form contorted, and for a single second, I thought faintly that her figure was more like a bag of skin than anything remotely human. Then Ernest slammed the door. As I write you, my back is pressed to that very same door. It's been about five hours since what happened happened. The smell is unbearable, even after Ernest and I shoved blankets in the crack under the door. Ernest has been in and out of the room, seemingly determined to capture every last rat in the house. There has been no noise from Libby, but I find myself imagining her standing just outside the door, listening to me labor away at this letter. I can still hear the rats, though. They skitter across the floor of the cellar, scratch at the stairs, gnaw at the door. I dare not leave my post. Come quickly. Yours, Will Clay. currently living in a time where viruses and disease are on everyone's mind. But if you recall a number of years ago, there was another disease that struck fear into people. One spread by livestock into the food we eat. And in this tale, shared with us by author Daniel Huris, we meet a man who worked closely in the meat industry and lived through one specific event which will haunt him forever. 
performing this tale are Sarah Thomas and Jeff Clement. So the next time you grab that burger or juicy steak, you might want to remember the threat posed by mad cow disease. The following is a commentary on the account of Mr. Reginald King concerning his experiences during the infamous Slaughterhouse Slaughter incident. This audio file comes courtesy of an interview Mr. King did with a journalist three years after the event. This incident is often considered one of the most bizarre among real mystery enthusiasts, for at the time of my documentation, it has been popularly discussed and examined for over 14 years. Most of what I say will likely be known information. However, I believe a fresh perspective can often shed new light on a subject. As such, the primary purpose of my words is to only provide more context and clarification to the testimony, isolating details that may otherwise be overlooked. Thank you for agreeing to meet with me. I wasn't certain someone of your journalistic caliber would have much interest in my story. I'm unsure even if I believe what I went through, but well, I know what I saw, what I felt. Are we recording? Okay, um, I'll begin in just a moment. I, I just need to collect myself. It's not easy talking about the most horrific day of my life. Where do I begin? Never underestimate the ability for a human to adapt. At least that's what I told myself after the first shift at the slaughterhouse and every shift afterwards. I had repeated that mantra to myself for three years, hoping I actually could. Adapt, that is. Hoping that I could get used to it. I never did. Not really. I suppose I should give you some context. I'm not sure anyone really thinks they'll work in a slaughterhouse growing up. Well, unless you live in Ash Hills. It's an industry town with a population of about 5,000. So once you graduate high school, you either try your luck in retail or you work for Hammond's Meats. I tried it at first. Retail, I mean. It was drab. I hated interacting with customers and it barely could pay rent. Hammond's Meats, on the other hand, paid double with no squabbling housewives to insincerely smile at. I knew when I started, it, it'd be hard at first, but it was much worse than I expected. It, it wasn't the workplace environment though. Hammonds actually has very sanitary operations and accidents, they're below industry averages for whatever it's worth. No, it was the animals that got to me. I feel I should make it clear though, okay? No one that works for Hammonds likes killing the animals. 
We're not a bunch of psychos, and we are humane about our operations. Well, as much as you can when you're killing a defenseless creature on an industrial level. When you buy your meat from the grocery store or the, the butcher, there are several degrees of separation. You look at a steak or ground beef, it's kind of impossible to imagine where that was on the animal, right? In the slaughterhouse, that's different. You can't delude yourself any longer. I was on the killing floor for maybe a week before I had to request a transfer. I... I just couldn't do it. You have no idea how much blood one cow has until you have to drain them. So, it wasn't long until I found myself manning the pens. I did think about going back to retail, but I told myself that I could handle it. I could adapt to this environment. Maybe things would have worked out better if I'd gone back. Mr. King's assessment of Ash Hills is rather accurate, but it is far less bleak than he tries to present. While Hammond's Meats is a pillar of the local economy, there are many other factories in the area that are just as employable for someone of Mr. King's lack of education. It's unclear why his opening narrative omits this detail, but perhaps at the time, Hammond's Meats was the only industrial employer hiring. Then there's the matter of that audio distortion heard at the start of the testimony. No one knows how much of the recording was corrupted, and it is my opinion that too much energy is spent on that uncertainty. Given how the rest of the testimony proceeds, it is unlikely any important information was missed. So that morning, I remember stumbling through my dimly lit apartment, crushing pizza boxes and wrappers underfoot. My head swam and my chest ached. Everyone at the plant had their vices to take off the edge. Mine was 100 proof vodka. I remember the distinct smell of rot that morning, though I can't really place what might have caused it. Anyways, I went through my morning ritual of a bunch of aspirin and washed them down with a swig of extra minty mouthwash. Just another morning in paradise. By all accounts, it was just another miserable weekday. Tuesday, I think. I never suspected then what would happen that day in the plant. I think about that a lot. You know how you hear all the time about miracle stories? where the grace of God seemingly diverts someone away from the path of disaster, right? That never happened for me. So, either God hates me, or I'm not important enough for him to care. Maybe he isn't real after all. Anyways, it was still dark outside my apartment building as I left. Despite my winter coat, a chill crawled down my back. It was late November, so the weather still hadn't made up its damned mind if it was going to snow or rain at any given moment. When I pulled into the parking lot 30 minutes later, I spotted the usual crew stumbling inside the employee entrance. Most of them looked just as bad as I did, but that wasn't much of a badge of honor. 
I may be an alcoholic, but I'm better off than the people that use the harder stuff. This is often where the red flags in Mr. King's credibility are raised. As a confessed, self-destructive alcoholic, it is difficult to be certain whether his following experience happened the way he describes. Compound that with an admission of mental problems from the job, and it makes his account hard to rely on when doing an investigation of the incident. Additionally, his observations on his co-workers are provably false. Hammond's meets, at this point in time, did regular drug tests. Any person that failed was terminated. Ash Hills had been suffering a heroin crisis, and any employees under the influence would be a serious safety risk. So, I find it quite impossible for any of the other employees to be using harder stuff at the time of the incident. I believe this error is a result of the three-year gap between the incident and the recording. However, this only further casts doubt on his account. I got to the pens, found my co-worker Frank Willow was in the thick of it already. Apparently the cows got spooked overnight, as a lot of them were really riled up. This happens from time to time, but it's a problem. Stressed animals leads to fighting and bruises and overall lower quality meat. The pen's conditions are cramped from packing as many cows as possible inside. So any sudden movements can incite infectious panic. The enclosure spaces are designed to keep the animals more docile, though, so it was strange to see them this upset. We did what we could, but we just couldn't get them to settle down. We decided to give up on the effort. It wasn't working, and we were only endangering ourselves by continuing. I'll be honest, in my three years working at Hammond's, I never saw the cows so distressed as they were then. At first, they seemed angry, but that was incorrect. They were terrified and trying with all their power to run. Only, you can't run if you can't move. A part of me wondered if it was mad cow disease. The industry was just beginning to understand what caused it, so it was something that we were told to look out for. But that just didn't add up here. If MCD was to blame, then why hadn't there been other symptoms earlier? And for all the pens to suffer it at once made that even more unlikely. It was then that I saw it. Amongst all the shrieking and panicking cows was one cow that was utterly calm. I hadn't seen it before because of the low lighting the pens use. It it looked sickly, to be blunt. The hair was patchy and the skin bunched and sagged like it was too large for its body. Like... uh, like canvas poorly stretched over a frame. Its glassy eyes looked up at me, and I froze. I felt something inside me as I stared back. Terror. Terror that this cow was somehow smarter than the rest. Smarter than me. I don't know why I thought that. I... 
But those eyes betrayed a hidden intelligence. Why are you killing us? Is what I imagined it was thinking. Are you really better than us? If we were just meat to you, then maybe you're just meat to us. I clutched my head. The aspirin was wearing thin with the animal cries. Frank came to my side and pulled me to a nearby bench to recover. I, I think I mumbled something about the sick cow, and I think Frank understood. I was taken to the first aid station to rest. The staff are used to physical injuries, like a sliced off hand, but they really didn't know what to do for a splitting migraine. So they gave me some water and told me to rest. This section is rather difficult to verify. The security camera system used by Hammond's Meats was incredibly out of date. Due to the low lighting used in the animal enclosures, which is common in the industry, footage of that area is like looking through dirty glass. There does seem to be a commotion amongst the animals, but it does not seem as fierce as Mr. King describes. I cannot confirm the presence of this sick cow from the footage either. Additionally, the livestock manifests I have traced do not mention a sick cow or any other oddities. I am not inclined to completely discount the existence of this sick cow. However, it is difficult to support with the available evidence. It was hard to rest. The first aid station was near the processing area and the plant, so all I could hear was the sound of dripping blood, chopping meat, and buzzing saws. I, I couldn't stop thinking about that sick cow. Something was wrong with it. How had it even been sold to us? No one in their right mind would sell a cow in a state like that for meat. Frank showed up eventually to see how I was faring. I didn't feel any better, but I tried to give an imitation of a smile. I think that made Frank feel a bit better. I asked if they got the cows under control. He said they had. They got much quieter when they removed the cow I mentioned. <laughs> I, I told him an off-color joke about how the cow must work for a rival slaughterhouse, but Frank didn't laugh. He just looked concerned. It wasn't like Frank to leave my awful jokes unacknowledged. He usually rolled his eyes or cracked back playfully. Something was obviously eating at him, so I asked what the problem was. Was management upset? Was I going to be fired? Frank shook his head, and his eyes crawled back over to look at me. He said that they found an intact skeleton in one of the pens. But not just any skeleton. An honest-to-God horse skeleton. I looked at him. Dumbfounded. Like, that didn't make any sense. I comb through those pens daily. There was no way I would miss something like that. I told Frank as much, and he agreed that it was beyond bizarre. We threw around some half-baked theories that neither of us really believed. I think it relaxed Frank a bit. 
it didn't seem so weird if it was a dumb prank or a mix-up from the supplier. As the conversation began to die, I asked what he did with that sick cow. Frank shrugged and looked over at the processing area. He'd sent it to be killed. He told me he hadn't seen anything inherently wrong with it other than perhaps extreme dehydration. Meat was meat, after all, and nothing should go to waste. I believe his words at the time had been, it's butchering two birds with one stone. My blood ran cold. I was about to demand he say more when several shouts erupted from processing. Frank dashed out of the first aid station to see what the commotion was. I swallowed hard as the shouts turned into cries and then into screams. I, I, I can't really describe too well what I was hearing. It was this horrific symphony of buzzsaws, blood splashes, screams, and tearing meat. I didn't dare take a peek. I couldn't even breathe, let alone move. I just kept my eyes locked on the door outside the station, imagining all sorts of slasher movie villains slipping through and flaying me. The screams drew closer, and the gory sounds became sharper. I huddled into a ball and I clamped my hands over my ears, praying that this was all just a bad dream. I'm not proud of my reactions, but I think it's what kept me alive. I heard something heavy slap on the ground outside the station. I opened one eye to see a bloody and shredded James Corden, one of the managers. My breath hitched in my throat. I wanted to scream, but I forced myself not to. James's eyes listed to look at me, begging me to help him. Begging eyes, like, like the ones the cows had just before I sent them to slaughter. I shook my head. It, it took everything I had not to weep in terror. James's body was dragged away, leaving a bloody smear on the concrete floor. All was silent after that. I huddled there for hours, not daring to make a sound. I couldn't give my position away from whatever had butchered my co-workers. In the time that slipped by, I thought I heard some things. Odd things. It sounded like a human voice, but it rapidly changed its pitch. I don't, I don't know, maybe maybe one of my my dying co-workers had their voice ruined from screaming so much. There is no evidence available to suggest these observations. Our records show that the rather useless camera feeds go dead at 1.37 p.m. Based on the footage that is available, this happened moments after Frank Willow quickly led a cow to slaughter, likely the sick cow, but that is conjecture on my part. No one I have talked to can agree on an explanation for the camera malfunctions. 
It could be a coincidence, poor maintenance protocols, or deliberate interference. Mr. King spends a lot of time discussing the mystery horse skeleton discovered. I will not deny it is strange, but only if Mr. King is as diligent as he claims. I cannot come to any real plausible conclusion for this discovery. The existence of this skeleton is unconfirmed. The aftermath was, frankly, a circus. Bodies of all shapes and sizes were recovered without much regard to their significance. So, it's very possible that a horse skeleton just got lost in the shuffle amongst the more apparent carnage. It's a slaughterhouse, an officer might have said. Why wouldn't there be a skeleton here? Is it a cow? Who cares? This is all to say, we cannot verify anything Mr. King describes. Hence why this situation is often regarded as a curiosity. Photographs of the aftermath do corroborate many of the grisly descriptions Mr. King offers. Due to their graphic nature, I will not provide any details. However, I will say, looking through the images, it is often difficult to differentiate the bodies. The corpse identified as Mr. James Corden, mentioned in the account, was particularly nasty. Think of a cheese grater being rubbed over your entire body. It was then that the police arrived. I stared in shock and disbelief as an officer helped me out of the first aid station. I think I tried to tell him what happened, but I just babbled like a lunatic. I was rushed out of the plant, likely so that they could secure the area. I saw a lot, a lot of blood, a lot of corpses, human and cow littering the floors. It was a massacre. And I... Wait. Wait, 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 wait. I remember something. Um, it was right after I was taken out of the plant. Um, I was sitting in the back of a cruiser, waiting for the ambulance to take me to the hospital. I had a, 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 a rough wool blanket placed around me, and I remember it smelled like stale sweat and pickle brine. I heard a knock at the window. It was an officer. He had a broad smile on his face. But I couldn't see his eyes from my position. So I opened the door and he introduced himself as, um, uh, oh, Constable Smith. He explained he was the first responder to the incident and was glad to see someone made it out alive. He talked, but I wasn't really listening. I couldn't really focus at the time, likely from the shock. But I remember his voice seemed off. It, it was subtle, but there was a constant shifting in pitch, like he was searching for his own voice. He grabbed my hand and gave a firm handshake. But as we shook, I noticed the skin felt loose. Like, like canvas poorly stretched over a frame. 
I met his gaze. His eyes betrayed a hidden intelligence. And his smile now dripped with malice. This is where the recording ends, abruptly. Due to the shock Mr. King was under, his sudden recollection is under exceptional doubt. He may be confusing his observation of the sick cow with Constable Smith due to him processing the trauma he went through. However, the slaughterhouse slaughter remains a cold case to this day, with only conjecture to prop it up. Mr. King's testimony is widely disputed, with good reason. But I believe his story. I believe that he is being honest in his account, with slight exaggerations. We all do this when we tell stories about ourselves. So, while I may not believe everything that he says happened, I believe he genuinely believes that this is what happened to him. There is one other detail related to this situation, not often discussed. Shortly after this incident, Constable Smith was noted for sudden behavioral changes. Colleagues observed he sounded slightly different and his personality became more distant. Most interesting was that five weeks later, he was found dead in his motorhome. Or, more correctly, he was found as a skeleton, stripped of all flesh. I do not know what that means for this case, or if it's connected at all, but it's hard to ignore with everything else involved in the slaughterhouse slaughter. When a beloved grandparent dies, most people want time to grieve their loss. But oftentimes there are wills to contend with, which take away from the necessary time of mourning. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by Mr. Michael Squid, one man has little time to mourn due to a letter he receives informing him that his grandfather needs him to do one final thing for him. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, and Nicole Goodnight. So honor the final wishes if you can, no matter how strange, because, like the man tells us, it was my grandpa's last request. After my grandma died a year ago, my grandfather became a bit of a recluse. The last time I'd seen him was at Thanksgiving. His tired eyes and weak smile made it clear he wasn't coping well. He'd been with my grandmother since high school, so when she passed away from heart failure, his heart seemed to have died too. I did my best to lift his spirits in the few brief phone conversations I initiated, but it was no use. It was clear he'd already cashed out. Grandpa had become a shut-in, rarely leaving his home. We received a phone call a few weeks ago. My grandpa was dead. The neighbors saw him hanging by his neck through the bedroom window. 
After a very somber funeral consoling my mother, who would not stop crying, we were informed about his will. The lawyer set up an appointment a few days afterward. My mother received all of his savings and stocks. I hadn't been too close to him, so I was a bit surprised when the lawyer read my name off as the one to inherit his house. As if it wasn't peculiar enough, I also received an envelope. I was instructed by the lawyer, as per my grandfather's request, to read it in private and not share the contents with anybody, not even my parents. I nodded when the lawyer asked me if I understood, and I accepted the letter. I waited until the formality had finished to look over it. So many questions arose when I tore open the sealed envelope and read the folded letter within. Dear grandson, I want to apologize for leaving you this burden, but I fear your mother may be too stubborn to fulfill my requests. She's strong-headed and a bit of a snoop, bless her heart. I just need to know that what needs to be done will be, without hesitation and without compromise. I need you to cement over the door in the basement of the home I'm leaving you. I need you to do it alone, not with any help from friends, family, or contractors. Do not mention the door or the walling over of it to anyone. Now, I must warn you, you may hear strange things down there. You might see things that don't make sense. No matter what you think you see or hear, you must ignore it. I know we were never too close, but I promise you I'm a good man, and because I am a good man, I need to make sure that door is sealed up and inaccessible. The less you know, the better. In the basement are all the supplies you'll need. I know it's a lot of work, but you need to take care of this, and your mother cannot know about it. Just tell her I gave you a check and wanted the sum to be private if she asks about the letter. I wish I'd known you better. Don't wait. Albert. I felt queasy reading Grandpa's last request. It seemed like paranoid rambling and filled me with trepidation. What had he kept down there? Visions of filthy magazines or a sex dungeon flickered into my mind for a second, before I let out a nervous chuckle. He was a straight-laced, stand-up guy. A retired businessman with a penchant for fly fishing. I tried to wrap my head around why I'd received such a peculiar request, but finally accepted the fact that whatever secret he might be hiding, I'd let it die with him. That all changed a week later as I drove up to the home my grandpa had bequeathed to me. My eyebrows raised as I turned into the driveway, and I got a clear view of the house. It looked rather expensive, albeit a bit small. It was a stone, two-story home, quaint and welcoming despite the shaggy, overgrown lawn. The windows and roof had all been fixed up in the last decade, but the actual structure was likely a few hundred years old. I unlocked the door and couldn't help but smile. It dawned on me then, I was an actual homeowner with a beautiful old house just an hour from the city. No more renting out shoebox apartments or hearing sex sounds or terrible music from the neighbors. I walked through this unlit house, checking out the two bathrooms, one with a tub, living room, and dining room. I paused at Grandpa's room, staring at the wooden beam. I continued on a bit shaken, but I smiled again when I spotted the fireplace. I then thought back to the bizarre request in that private letter when I discovered the door leading down to the basement. It creaked open and I flipped the light switch, illuminating the concrete floor at the bottom of the stairs. I descended, hearing the steps groan and creak under my weight. There were some dusty tarps and a stack of bricks, as well as a few 80-pound bags of quick-set concrete and a bag of tools to use it with. I reached the bottom step and then I saw the door. It was on the far wall of the basement, a framed wooden door, dead center questions immediately rose. What did it lead to? Based on the dimensions of the basement and the house above, the door should technically lead to a space outside of the home itself. 
I approached it, scanning for any kind of detail that might give light to what lay within, but finding none. It was just a standard white-painted wooden door with a brass handle and antique-style keyhole. So this was what he wanted me to cover up. My stomach squirmed at the thought of it. What was so important to keep encased in concrete and forgotten? My mind wandered to some dark places. I envisioned a body. I shook my head vigorously as if trying to physically banish these terrible thoughts from my brain. But then I heard a whimper. A muffled, high-pitched crying was coming from the other side of the door. I nearly collapsed in horror at the revelation. Someone was inside. Hello? Is someone in there? I listened to the sniffling. And then after a few seconds, I heard a response. Hello? Is someone there? Can you please let me out? A woman's voice. I felt sick as my mind flooded with horror. Somebody was locked away down here. I covered my mouth with my hand and my eyes flooded with tears. It was horrible. I'm here. Don't worry, I'm going to get you out. I then froze and remembered the letter, tucked in my jacket pocket to make sure I didn't miss anything. I pulled out the paper, unfolded it, and skimmed some details which only then stood out. I need to warn you, you may hear strange things down there. You might see things that don't make sense. No matter what you think, you see, or hear, you must ignore it. Visions of some devil locked behind that door were conjured into my mind, grinning fangs through which the delicate feminine voice spoke. A monster awaiting a meal of a fool. Who are you? My name is Clara Monaco. I I was abducted by, by someone with the pistol. I, I, I didn't see their face. I, I promise you. Please. It's been so long. Months, maybe, maybe years. The food has begun to rot since they stopped coming down here. I, I've gotten sick trying to eat it. Please. The tears were flowing down my face. Salty, warming rivers that cooled from the dusty air. I removed my cell phone and quickly searched the name she'd spoken. My heart plunged into my stomach as a picture came up in the search results. A photo of a smiling brunette 19-year-old who'd gone missing nearly a year ago from Marshfield, the neighboring town. I looked back to the note, scouring my resolve for any possible reason to trust the vague scribblings of my dead grandfather and not the clear, visible proof of an abducted teenager who was begging me to save her life. There was a large gap under the door, but... When I crouched to peer in, the edges of what appeared to be dinner plates obscured the view within. Clara, where are you from? I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but my family moved to Marshfield when I was 10. We we have a large house near the beach. I miss my dog. I miss my parents, please. She was sobbing then. (laughs) I was too. This poor girl had been abducted. I reached the brass knob and tried it a few times. It was locked. Sometimes... I hear the rattle of a key, as if he's debating letting me go. I think it's out there somewhere. Her whimpering voice hit me like a gut punch. I then loathed my grandfather. I tried to justify his actions. I tried to convince myself his dementia had led him to believe this girl was some kind of monster. I tried, but I couldn't. He'd never shown any glimpse of paranoia or mental instability. This was purely evil. I had to understand. Why did he lock you up? I circled the dusty basement looking for a key. It appeared empty aside from the cement, tarps, bricks, and putty knife, all laid out neatly to cover up the heinous crime, all while this poor girl starved to death in a cemented tomb. I have no idea 
I did nothing wrong, I promise you. The woman started weeping then. I couldn't take it. It was too horrible to imagine. My will to end her misery fueled my rage. And then I spotted the small key, high up and dangling from a string nailed to the back of a wooden support beam. I plucked the key off the beam and looked at it. It was ancient. An old primary key of tarnished metal that looked out of time. Dread filled me as I stared back at that door. What if it was all some manipulative trick? I wrestled with the decision of what to do next. This girl would die if I left her unattended. That was all it took for me to take a few deep breaths and approach the door. I slipped the key inside the lock and turned, hearing a heavy click echo throughout the cold concrete basement. I squeezed my eyes tight and then opened them to a squint as I pulled open the door, ready for some horror to yank me into the dark depths within. The smell of rot hit me, but there was nobody there. No monster, no abducted girl. There was just an empty closet space of old stone matching the home's exterior, and on the ground, plate after plate of untouched, moldy, and rotten food. It was impossible. I had absolutely heard that voice. I'd heard Clara Almonico beg for her freedom from just behind that door. Yet, nobody was within. I checked my phone again, feeling the hairs on my neck rise as the search results on screen were different than they were before. They now simply read, No results found for Clara Almonico. I didn't sleep that night. I closed and locked that door, but somehow I knew I'd messed up beyond words. I'd fumbled the most significant task of my existence. The back of my brain tingled with a special kind of horror that week as grim news stories began to surface. It chipped away at me as I read an article detailing of a jump of murders and suicides throughout the state. There'd been a slew of missing person reports and a house fire that charred a family in their sleep one neighborhood over. It curdled my insides when I looked out the window to see a half dozen dead birds scattered throughout the lawn. Black clouds loomed in the sky the following morning and have persisted for three days now. Hard as I tried to justify what I heard clear as a bell, I was unable to. I could only think of those untouched plates of moldy food that had been pushed through the gap under the door time and time again. Food my grandpa had clearly slid under out of concern. The most damning revelation came today, when I finally returned to the basement to brick over that door. It wasn't the faint set of bare footprints in the skim of dust leading from that door. It was the receipt in the bag of tools he'd purchased along with the dusty cement. The receipt was from a year ago, from the day after my grandmother's death. Walling over the door had been her last request for him. In our final tale, we learn of a man's life through that most ancient manner of personal documentation, a blog on his website. In this case, a long-lost website shut down as the web evolved beyond those simple, cheap hosting sites. And as we learn in this tale from author Harold Neil Riggs, the man's blog focused solely on his pursuit to find one strange book a book of legendary status that shouldn't really exist, 
and yet it does. It falls upon me to share this tale with you. So hear this story and make of it what you will. A tale about a book known simply as Liturgy of Hungers. In 2009, the popular early web page hosting service, Geosites, shut down its servers. Thousands of people searched through old blogs, half-remembered web pages, and all manner of nearly forgotten detritus from the internet's earliest days. The following was found on the public blog of user iSeekTruth89, and is all that remains of his account. The uploaded JPEG files accompanying these posts were corrupted beyond recovery, as were all previous entries. There were no further entries or sign of activity from this user. Entry 1 I found it. It's taken four years and more money than I care to admit, but I finally found the damn thing. I can hardly believe it. I've been traveling across the country, hunting down leads, checking old antique shops and occult suppliers and new age fairy horseshit stores for years. And then one day, entirely out of the blue, I find the thing in a secondhand bookstore. It'd almost be insulting if it wasn't such a find. To think, all the hours and train rides and correspondence following old leads, and in the end, a copy was just floating around in practically my own backyard. Well, maybe not a copy. I'm pretty sure this is a first edition, such as it is. Okay, some context before I lose everybody. I've been following this trail for so long, it's easy to get ahead of myself. I've been hearing rumors about a book for half my life. I think I first heard about it in high school, when we all just assumed it was a prank being played on freshmen. But then I came across more stories, overheard at conventions, mentioned on message boards, whispered at the right sort of party. This story was everywhere, but I never found anything of substance to it. And then, well, after a while, I just had to learn more. Find out if it was really real. All the stories about this thing, all the years scrounging for any shred of actual information, and now I finally have it with me. Okay, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's do this right. Entry 1. For real this time. The book is most commonly called The Liturgy of Hungers. But if rumors can be believed, it's appeared under dozens of other names. The Gnawing, The Rancid Feast, Banquet of Worms, and Starving Souls, to name a few. As far as I know, I'm the first person to publicly document an actual physical copy of the book. I'm uploading some pictures of the thing, but what the photos don't convey very well is a sense of age. As I just mentioned, I've been hearing rumors about this book for almost 10 years now, so I figured it was entirely possible someone heard these rumors and slapped together something to make a quick buck off the curious. But this book looks and feels old. It's hard to describe, but the book has the same sort of feel as some old encyclopedias I've used printed back in the 1960s. 
I'm not worried that the thing will crumble into dust when I touch it, but I can't imagine this being less than 20 years old. That doesn't rule out the hoax angle, though. The materials seem cheap enough. Fairly generic cover with either low-quality leather or the fake stuff. Corners worn smooth. A faint, musty odor to the pages. I don't get the sense whoever made this put a lot of money into it. But, more to the point, in my research I've come across some mentions of this thing from letters and correspondence dated to the 1950s. So, right now, I don't know if I'm looking at the book that started the myths, or something put together to profit off the myths. The source, or a byproduct, so to say. To be honest, there were two things that made this stand out to me. First, when I initially saw it in the bargain shelves, the spine was completely blank. I had to take it off the shelf to see its title, printed in plain black type along the cover. I kind of suspect it's been rebound at some point. And that raises the question, who would care enough to rebind a cheap cash-in? It took me a while to put my finger on the second thing. There's no publishing information here. Nothing. No author, no publisher, no printing date. The inside cover and first page are just blank. Just Liturgy of Hungers on the cover and the first actual page. I'll admit, I'm not sure what to make of this. At the time, I thought at a point in favor of authenticity. Surely if some publishing house was trying to make some money on the thing, they'd have to include their publishing information. But now that I have the book in front of me here, I can't help but think that it might have been intentional. A marketing ploy to create some mystique. Or maybe it was just lost when the book was rebound several years back. Either way, $5 for the best lead I've had on this myth is a hell of a steal. I bought the book on the spot. It's been a long day, and I just got back home. The book's pretty heavy, so I'm going to postpone starting on it until tomorrow, when I have some free time. My working plan is to make a post every day or so, just going over my findings. Entry 2 Alrighty. Today I read the first dozen pages of The Liturgy. The book's pretty big, and I only intend to read a little bit every night, after work and errands are done, so it may take a little while to get through. I went to see how long the thing was, to get an idea of when I'd finish, only to find that the book doesn't have page numbers. A quick flip through the first half suggests it doesn't have chapters either. But there seems to be places where the text is broken up by a scene change or something, so that's what I'm going to use to set my pace. It seems to be written from the perspective of a guy named David. First person, past tense. Now, I could go into hysterics about how the protagonist of this mysterious book I found has my name. <laughs> oh no, how creepy is that? <laughs> But really, it's a common name, and I'll be lucky if this guy is the 10th least idiotic protagonist I come across this year who shares it with me. Gone are the days of my namesake and the Goliath, it seems. But it doesn't really get to David for a while. Rather, it begins with the day the astronomers killed themselves. He spends the first few pages thinking about that day. He learned about it on his car radio one morning. Hundreds of people were found dead in the morning hours, and by the time of his commute, the authorities had realized all of them were astronomers. 
None of them left notes. Almost none of them seemed depressed or awed before that night. And they had killed themselves in visceral, gruesome ways with whatever was on hand, be it firearm, belt, or precipice. No one knew what to make of it, but the trend continued. Throughout the day, more and more stargazers were found deceased. At first, they thought it might have been a regional thing, but reports came in from across the country, and then from neighboring countries, and finally from around the globe, as people found the dead after the crack of dawn. That first night was the worst, but every night after, for a week, people who looked up to the night skies ended their lives. The rest of today's section was more background. David talks about himself, about his recently deceased wife, and about his young daughter, Diana. He doesn't offer many details. He seems a laconic narrator. But between the language he uses and the details he divulges, I get the impression of a man living through loss. He drives Diana to grade school every morning because it gives him a chance to steal a few extra minutes with her each day before he trudges to his office. His work is distracted, often interrupted by memories of the love he lost and the daughter whose future he works for. He paid little mind to the omens. Entry 3 The book began with astronomers killing themselves en masse. I covered that bit yesterday. David spends surprisingly little time on it. He says he just didn't think much of it at the time, for whatever reason. Too busy with his daily work and his daughter, I guess. But over the course of a week, almost every professional astronomer and stargazer was dead and gone. He assumed that those who remained were too afraid to look upwards to see what had so shaken their co-workers, comrades, and professional rivals. Some of the great telescopes were even destroyed during this time by angry mobs, worried government agencies, and even the scientists who worked there. Again, David didn't think much of it at the time. His little Diana had a fever that week, he mentions. To him, it seemed like a faraway, strange tragedy. It didn't become real until the stars started going out. The people who might have been able to explain why it happened were dead or hiding. David reasoned that whatever force or phenomena was responsible, it had started to affect further, dimmer stars at first, and the world at large only became aware of it when the stars and constellations visible to the naked eye started to go dark. It was a slow thing, dragging out over months and months, but every night as the sun set, people would look up to the heavens and see blank spots where stars had been swallowed by pure night. Sometimes nothing was visibly different. Sometimes famous stars would go dark. And every evening would fade to a night somehow poorer than the one before. As the lights in the sky went dark, people became nervous. It was a small, out-of-the-way thing, he mentions. It was easy not to think about the dimming stars during the light of day. But in the increasingly empty night, he would stare at the skies, overcome with a sense of nameless, formless dread. 
He was staring at the sky from his apartment balcony when it arrived. Everyone who would have seen it coming beforehand was dead or silent. It lit up the sky as it approached, shining bright enough to overshadow Venus and Jupiter. From its first appearance, the first worrisome glimmer David spied from his balcony, it took two weeks to fully arrive, growing larger and larger every night. He describes the first real panic of the whole affair. The street corner prophets preaching the end, the worried rumors that a gigantic asteroid was on its way, that a celestial impact would wipe away humanity just as the heavens had cleaned the world of the dinosaurs 65 million years before. But the fear was subdued, the riots, nervous things of bundled anxious energy with no suitable outlet. The trained astronomers were gone, but it wasn't too difficult for people to figure out the object appeared to be slowing. It was huge, far larger than anyone had guessed. It grew, swelling gravid in the sky, changing from a burning light to a lambent glow as its pale green expanse became visible, until it slowed and came to hang heavy in the sky. The entire world felt uneasy as it approached warped and spread thin as the object snagged itself in Earth's gravity well. And nervous dread turned into laughter and celebration as word spread. Earth had just inherited a second moon. It played havoc with the tides, of course, and migratory animals had no idea what to do. Geese flew out over the ocean, diving into the waters never to re-emerge. Dolphins flung themselves onto rocky beaches and bled out on the shore by the thousands. Spiders wove crooked webs and ensnared bats that swarmed at all hours of the day. David writes with a sense of guilt, bemoaning how he was too relieved at the near miss to spare thoughts or alms for the millions who lived along the coasts where skyscraper-sized waves began breaking twice a month. The coastal lowlands were ravaged, but humanity, at large, celebrated. For the herald of our doom had become a new, beautiful adornment to the night sky. He calls the thing beautiful, but that doesn't really match the novel's description. According to the liturgy, this foreign moon was greenish-yellow, nearly bleached bone-white, brighter than our old moon, but with a sickly coronal tinge. It put in mind the color of old ivory and corroded iron. And it seemed to glow, not from any reflection, but with its own pale, sickly light. I have to say, I'm not really sure what I expected, but this certainly isn't it. I'm still not very far in, though. Maybe 50 pages or so. And the book is at least 10 times as long. I have to say, so far the thing is being carried by its prose... The diction is occasionally odd, but it always seems to leave me hungry for more. The weekend is coming up, so I should be able to write down some more by Sunday. We'll get to the bottom of this creepy book yet. Entry 4 It slammed into the old moon one day. David didn't see the collision. No one that he knew of did. One night, the clouds were dense and black, and when they parted, 
Old Luna was reeling, a trail of dust bleeding from a fracture across its surface, its hemispheres cracking apart. Its familiar surface was shattered, every old crater and dried ravine gone, splintered and blasted by the impact of its planet-shearing forces. Every old figment, every smiling face or man in the moon was gone. Strangest of all, though, Luna seemed smaller. At the time, people thought the collision may have knocked it into a further orbit. It wasn't like there were any astronomers to ask anymore. And astrophysicists hadn't been doing too well of late, either. People stared in awe and horror as the heavens shifted. The new moon remained, a long, vast gash carved across its surface, its own wound from the collision that sent the pale daughter of universal legends reeling. It came out the better for the exchange. The old moon grew smaller in the sky, night by night, the cloud of dust from its hemisphere-wide scar glistening in the night, and then fading. Luna's light seems to die away, to dwindle as she continues to shrink or is driven away or bleeds out into the empty night. Entry 5 I found the Liturgy of Hungers in Maxwell's used bookstore up in Northbrook. It's your typical used bookstore, messy, crammed with overcrowded shelves, operated more by an obsessive love of books than a desire or expectation of profit. Like any decent used bookstore, it's probably just a front for the owner's OCD hoarding. I've had the owners of some of these shops glare at me when I decided to actually buy one of their books. But not Maxwell. I didn't really know him well, but he was amiable in his sort of introverted, reclusive way. I only spoke to him a few times in the couple of years I've been visiting his shop, but I liked him. Today, the morning news began by discussing the fire that had consumed Maxwell's used bookstore. Northbrook is a good hour's drive away, but the fire was bad enough to make it to our local station. Thousands of books reduced to ash and cinders, three other stores in the strip mall gutted or severely damaged. It took firefighters three hours to contain it. But Maxwell wasn't devoured by the blaze. They found his body, or what was left of it, ten miles away on the side of the highway. The news anchors implied that he was murdered, that the cops think this might be gang-related. Like maybe the bookstore owner didn't pay up his protection money. Apparently, his body was dismembered. His head and limbs hacked off. I was able to get some more details later on, stuff the police hadn't exactly released to the press. I knew the man. I was a regular at his little shop, and some of his old friends confided in me. They told me that the people who actually found him reported that his body looked... well, ravaged. But not as though he'd been hacked apart by axes or human weapons. I'm told it looked like the pieces they had found had been chewed on, scavenged by boars. Yeah, I'll miss the old man. Now, in David's story, 
things are getting bleak. The city, uh, his city, he never gives it a name, has been unwell from the start. It's gotten much worse since the moons collided. An uneasiness permeates the air. The old dread from those first starless nights yet lingers, but is gnawed away by something more prescient, an anxious-edged anticipation of some looming, terrible revelation. In the waking day, people pretend things are normal. David goes about his life, his job, and his chores. He notes that no one mentions the empty cubicles, the abandoned apartments, or shuttered offices. There are more of them by the day. He keeps his head low and pushes on, and has taken to deadbolting his door at night. At night. At night, the restraints by which people keep their fear and anger and dread at bay begin to fray. He can hear neighbors arguing, shouting at each other through the walls and ceiling of his apartment. And when the hollering grows too fierce, the shrieked insults and rage too spiteful, then the sounds change to screams and grow quickly silent. He has heard nothing from the couple in the apartment below him in months. The streets tremble, but people still risk them, now more than ever as people are drawn to restaurants and grocery stores. Those few that are open 24 hours have prospered greatly, while all other businesses have faltered and diminished. David stays inside after sunset, close to his daughter Diana. They sleep with candles burning, and only after a late supper has quieted their stomachs. He stays close to her at night now. She's been crying when she's alone or when she thinks he's asleep. He sees her pale blue eyes bloodshot, red and misty, time and time again. At night, he can hear her sob for the mother she misses, for the world as it was only half a year ago, for a time when she wasn't always afraid. And up above, the old pale moon dwindles night by night, until one night it passes behind the new moon and never emerges. Around this time, the new moon's scar became a face. The gigantic fissure along its lambent green-yellow surface has finally resolved itself into something like a mouth, something crooked, leering, and hungry. David began to fancy an expression around that eerie mouth, assigning a crater and a blotchy expanse the color of hard-weathered ivory as eyes. Once he saw it, though, he could never unsee it. Ever after, the new hungering moon leered down upon him, dominant and alone in the night sky. Entry 6 Sorry for the delay. Things have been kind of rough over here. I think I'm fighting off a cold. I've been feeling drained and tired this last week or so. Maybe a stomach bug is going around. I haven't been able to get a good night's sleep for the contortions my gut does when I lay down at night. I'm out of sick days, so I suffer what I can, 
and it leaves me just incredibly exhausted by the time I get back home. I'm still reading the liturgy, but only a few pages at a time. I need to stop reading it before bed. I think it's giving me bad dreams, but it always leaves me peckish, and I always want to read a little more. Okay, continuing from where we left off. The celestial collision happened in mid-spring. By summer, the temperature had begun to cool. The world continued to spin, and news from outside crept into David's awareness. It seemed every day brought some new trouble or disaster. Harvests looked uncertain. Grain reserves were found to be infested with worms. Businesses shuttered their doors and companies went bankrupt. Wars broke out in the far corners of the world. But such things were distant. At home, though, the outlook had also grown grim. Months of fear began to boil over. His office had become a listless, wretched place, long periods of silence torn apart by sudden screaming matches and wailing sobs. The city streets were lined with boarded-up or gutted stores and shops. He hears on the news that there is a sharp uptake in violent crime, particularly robberies of grocery stores, restaurants, and pet shops. One day in August, the sun is setting at six in the afternoon, and David drives by a hanged corpse suspended from a streetlight. The police have stopped cleaning them up. David can't remember the last time he saw a bird. But the hungering moon endures. It hangs fat and swollen in the sky, like a tick filled to bursting, leering its demonic smile down upon the world. It comes and goes as it pleases, to no rhyme or cycle that anyone can figure. It seems sullen or subdued when it shares the sky with the sun, but it lords triumphant in the night, and the streets and city ring to the sounds of gunshots, of fires, of screams and laughter. David bolts his door and holds Diana close on such nights. A man in David's building is killed one night. Police responded to a garbled call from his apartment, but when they arrive, the door is locked. When they ram the door open, they find the man, hunched over the bodies of his wife and son, face and teeth stained crimson. They open fire, and when it's done, they cordon off the apartment with tape at the threshold. David hears everything from two doors over. He knows he has to flee the city. Entry 7 It occurred to me today that I don't know why I sought the book. I know I heard about it as a kid. I remember talking about it. Sharing whispered secrets at night with high school friends, trying to scare each other. But there were dozens of stupid stories we'd repeat to get a rise, let alone the stuff we'd actually do. Of all the ghost stories and urban legends, why did this one pull me in? The thing fell into my lap in the end. <sighs> Poor Maxwell. But before that, I'd spent... Uh, so much... 
I honestly can't figure a full tally. There were vacations I'd arranged to follow up on leads, road trips and hotel stays and days called in sick to work, just searching. I'd make other excuses, say these were places I'd never get to see otherwise, but there was always this question nibbling away at the back of my mind, influencing the decisions. How much of that would I have done if I wasn't searching for the liturgy? Thousands of dollars in simple cash, to say nothing of career prospects, friends allowed to drift away, dates or bars skipped. (laughs) But for all that I've spent searching for this damned thing, I don't really know why I bothered. When I first got it, I thought I'd debunk it. But that never really made sense. I'd read a book and just decide that someone churned out a cheap penny dreadful to take advantage of an old story most people had never heard of? That someone slapped a cover on something completely unrelated to sell it? Or maybe I wanted it to be real. To find the source of the story, the font of the legend, the original text from which God knows how many whispered stories and rumors spewed. Maybe if I could read it, post it, even if only a few people would ever see this, then it would be solved or settled. At once more real and less frightening. It's hard to be scared of a book that exists and sits on your kitchen counter. It doesn't have eyes or fangs or dreadful whispers or anything. Funny. I was never scared of the stories. They were creepy at first, and I loved finding out new ones, hearing all the twists and variations at different angles. They were exciting. But now... Now I'm scared of that book. The dreams are getting worse. In David's story, the world is cooling as autumn descends. Summer never happened, and already the skies are bleak and grey, the sun growing dim and scarcer by the day. There are no other lights in the sky now, just the diminishing sun in the weak hours of daylight, and the leering moon grinning avariciously down upon the world. Venus and Jupiter are dark or gone. David hears that things are even worse in the southern hemisphere until communication stops and he hears no more of the world outside his city. The night in the apartment, huddled with Diana as police executed the murderer on their floor, uh, that was the tipping point. David and Diana had been struggling to pretend things were normal, or at least not horrifyingly dismal, and that night dispelled their last illusions. The city was crumbling. Food shipments from the farms and countryside had grown few and far between. Mobs roamed the streets at night and during the long hours of dusk. But even these were beginning to tear each other apart as hunger crept in. Diana spent the night sobbing, weeping into her father's shoulder until her tears ran dry and exhaustion took her. In the long gray hours that used to be morning, David gathered everything he could, food, 
bandages, first aid, supplies, anything that he could fit into his car. Diana followed his lead without a word. She understood what they were doing. By sunrise, they were in David's car, packed heavy with necessities and the few cherished trinkets they wouldn't leave behind. A family picture, a rose pearl necklace, a grandfather's gold watch. They fled. David explained that this was just temporary, that they'd be coming back when things were safer. Neither of them believed it. They listened to the radio instead of talking. As the short day faded into a long twilight and the city fell to the horizon behind them, they could see plumes of smoke rising above it. The radio stopped playing music around that time. The tired DJ switching to news in a solemn voice. He hardly trembled at all. Rioters had stormed the mayor's mansion following rumors that he was stockpiling meat. Security forces opened fire. Other people came, attracted by the sound of gunfire or the light of the leering, hungering moon shining overhead. The newcomers fell on them, rioters, defenders, and corpses alike. The security forces fell back into the mayor's mansion, but whatever they found within drove them to set the building alight, with them still inside. The madness spread, block by block, racing alongside the fires. The Hospital of Holy Mercy had become a charnel house, orderlies in red-stained white scrubs marauding the nearby streets. The Baptist and Catholic churches on 22nd Street had both caught fire while their parishioners warred over visions of glory and bloody sacrament. The police had made a last stand in the city jail, executing the prisoners and then themselves, but not before setting the gas lines on fire. And yet still, people scaled the walls and rushed toward the charring meat. Noises began to creep into the broadcast, screams and cries and the pounding of fists on doors. The announcer signed off with a deafening bang that made David flinch at the wheel of his car. The broadcast didn't last long after that. David never did find another radio signal. Editor's note. It's worth noting that from here on in, the writing of the blog becomes messier, with typos throughout the text. The letter E is often omitted from words. For sake of clarity, the typos will be fixed in reading. But they are there. Entry 8 I had a dream. I was hungry. Starving. My gut was empty as the night sky. It gnawed at me from within. I crawled across a barren world beneath a lightless sky. Blind and numb. With nothing but my hunger to guide me. And then I found meat, 
It hurt, but the meat, the blood, the red heat, it was glorious. I chewed through the pain. I woke up with my left hand in my mouth. The doctor said I'd keep most of my fingers. Typing is hard right now. I told them I was attacked by a raccoon while throwing out trash, that it grabbed my hand and wouldn't let go. I don't think they believed me, but I don't think they care. The hospital is full right now. Animal attacks, accidents, assaults, no beds left open, and most of the other cases are worse off than me. I don't want to read anymore. I'm not even a quarter finished with the book, but I have to. David and Diana keep moving. They siphon gas from derelict vehicles abandoned by the side of the road. Days and hungry moonlit nights start to blend together. They rarely speak. Their supplies don't last. They scavenge gas stops, convenience stores, abandoned barns, any place along the roads where there might be food. They have no idea where they are, where they're going. All the trees are dead, the land an endless twilight-lit expanse of withered forests, empty fields, and gray ruins. Street signs are torn down, defaced, or missing. When the road names stop matching anything on their maps, they burn them for warmth at night. Sometimes they see smoke rising in vast plumes, but they avoid those places. Sometimes they find cities, empty and silent and fire-eaten. Sometimes they find corpses on the side of the road, or hung from branches, streetlights, or draped over high walls. In the open country, away from the ruined cities, they occasionally spot movement. There are people, or things, still alive, away from the roads. They kill their lights and keep their distance when they see movement at night, beneath the hungering moon's glow. One day, they come across the corpse of something that may have been a cow once. It collapsed a day ago, its head buried in the abdomen of a shriveled human clutching an empty rifle, a dozen festering bullet wounds along its flank. With sharp knives and no spoken words, David and Diana carve the beast apart. It was lean and withered, but its carcass offsets starvation for another few days. And the moon is always in the sky now. Its scarred maw grows larger, its sickly glow eclipsing the sun. The car lasts longer than David thought it would, but its engine starves and burns itself away. Skeletal forests behind them and the gnawed remains of a gray city before them. They leave it without a word, taking only their matches and knives. This section ends with David and Diana holed up, barricaded in an abandoned building. It was possibly an apartment complex or an office or a school. 
Now it is moldering walls and empty hallways, stacked on top of each other until the supports crumbled away. They're out of food. The day was particularly short and sickly. David wonders if there will ever be another one. They've built a bonfire of sorts, a pitiful flame that quickly eats away at what little burnable detritus was left. The night is cold, oppressive. The light of the hungering moon lingers outside, pale, lambent, green. As the fires grow dim and David's stomach growls and gnaws, he looks up to his daughter only to see a feral, hungry look in her eyes. The fire fades, and soon the last embers die. Entry 9 I read it. I read the book until its final cover, until my eyes wept blood and my fingers trembled and my stomach quaked. I... I don't know what to write. What comes next, I cannot say. The sun fades or is devoured and the world falls into utter darkness, an endless hungering night, a darkness that drowns the soul. There was blood and gristle and snapping bones and the tearing of raw meat. There was madness, howling and ravenous. There was spite and abandon and emotions human words simply failed to convey. I don't know how I read it, how I could understand it, but there was more, so much more. Other stories, other dooms, other hungers, every story left me feeling emptier inside. And I read them all until the rear cover snapped at my fingers. Oh God, I read it. The words are inside me now, hollowing me out from within, festering, seething. I've never felt so hungry. I burned the book. I know it won't matter. It was what little defiance I could muster. I doused it with lighter fluid and set it ablaze in a trash can. I swear, I can still hear its embers cackling. I haven't been outside in three days. My windows are shuttered and my doors are barricaded. I can hear raucous celebration outside. I can smell roasting meat, but it's the dead of winter right now. My electricity comes and goes and I doubt I'll have another chance to update this. Four days ago, I spent every penny I have on food, on sausages, hams and meat. The supermarkets and groceries were already half empty when I got there. I eat until the thought of more makes me sick, but I wake up starving every morning. The dreams are getting worse. The liturgy endures. I know this now as absolutely as I know emptiness, as I know hunger. I wondered why I found that book, 
<laughs> now I know. It wanted to be found. The liturgy was hungry. And God help me. I fed the damn thing. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.